It is a pleasure to be with you. I think I have one slide and one handout, which for me is actually low. So I'm going to have Meredith and Griffin hand out. And I, I printed 50 of them, so you might have to share. But uh, at our church, I'm notorious for having fill in the bulletin and then filling an insert. And so Meredith wanted you to get the full effect of having me here, so the insert. Uh, we're very thankful for BBC, obviously for the, uh, what you've poured into my daughter Madeline, Jedlica, Andy, Jedlica. Thankful to Josh for having done their wedding. Uh, if you see pictures of their wedding, Josh and then Maddie and Andy look like two little kids in front of them, uh, the height differential. And we're very thankful for Esteban. Uh, and our family, he's, he's like Pele, just singular name, Esteban, right? He's that infamous. And Megan's name is Megan and Esteban. That's her last name. Uh, very thankful for the ministry that Esteban has had in my daughter's life, our third daughter, Meredith, and of course, Griffin, and everybody else as well. We've got plans for Griffin. So uh, if, you, if, you need, if you need any young men trained, send them to Esteban's ministry, right? Uh, so it is a pleasure to be here. I wish it was under different circumstances. We do appreciate Josh praying for him and Caleb and his family as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, as, the, as the handout goes out, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So if you'll open your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Our goal is to cover verses uh, 19 through the end of the chapter, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1, and I picked this text, uh, not only am I a pastor, I'm also a biblical counselor, so uh, I, I just cannot recommend enough getting trained in biblical counseling that changes everything, the way you look at scripture, the way you teach, the way you parent, the way you preach. And this text, I, I love narratives, uh, one of the reasons why I love narratives is you could put yourself in the story and ask what would come out of my soul if I were there. Uh, another question I love to ask of narratives are, can you discern God's agenda? And then another question for narratives, how do I respond now knowing God's agenda? Narratives are great for not only the what, but the so what. So uh, love narratives, Deuteronomy chapter one, one of my favorite uh, truths I hope to show you today from this text is what sin is trying to do in our lives all the time. Before we jump into that, we'll, Elias is going to put just one by one slide, just for context of where we are. Uh, when we start in verse 19, we're going to be up at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, Israel has left Horeb. I actually think Horeb is in modern-day Saudi Arabia, so I'd be with the dashed line at the bottom. When I flew uh, airplanes for the military, we would fly over that very, very southern peninsula tip of the Sinai Peninsula. There's a nav aid right there called Wedge, uh, Whiskey Echo Juliet. And once you crossed wedge, we were in the combat zone, and everybody in the plane got tax-exempt uh, that entire month of tax-free pay. So everybody knew where wedge was. Uh, we, had, we had windows on our plane down by your feet so you could see down. Uh, and if you look, just, what did that be, east of the Sinai Peninsula, heading into Saudi Arabia, you can look in Google Maps now, you can still see the, the dirt underneath the water. It's that shallow. Anyway, I hope I don't lose you on all that, but I, I, I think Sinai's in, in uh, Saudi Arabia, surrounded by fences. But nonetheless, so 11 days north, they traveled to get to Kadesh Barnea, and that's where Israel is about to enter into the land of promise. So there's our one slide. Thank you, uh, Elias. I hope that was helpful. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. I'll try to mention all those implications from the text as we go along. Maybe it's a 
you know, a, a treasure hunt for you. You can see where you see them. I think we'll make reference to all of them. Verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all that great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. And we came to Kadesh Barnea. Now just notice that they've already had uh, trials, they've already had suffering, and they've already seen God work in that. They've already seen God's faithfulness in this portion of their journey. It was great, and it was a terrifying wilderness. God prevented them from being stung by any scorpions or bit by snakes, or their shoes didn't wear out. God was with them. And notice here that as the Lord our God commanded us. That's the first of four commands that we're going to, the word command or commanded us that we're going to see. And that's my seventh implication that I don't have on the bulletin because that's also notorious for me. Uh, I usually study, having two jobs, you study mostly on Saturday and I get up early on Sunday and then I add to my notes. Uh, beloved, most of us live by feelings. The trouble with living by feelings is number one, feelings tell you isness, not oughtness. Now those are made up words, but feelings tell you the temperature of your soul. They don't tell you the thermometer of your soul. They report isness. They never tell you how you ought to live. Number two, your feelings are unassailable. Meaning, if you're angry or sad, I cannot deny that. But it does not mean that it ought to be so. But they're unassailable in their existence. Number three, if you live by feelings, you, it's a form of leaning on your own understanding or your own wisdom. Right? Instead of living by God's commands, we're living by what I feel. It's, a, it's an affront to God that I have a better indicator of how I should live. And number four, if you live by feelings, you will eventually be a tyrant. Because true for me becomes truth. And truth must be obeyed by everybody in the room. And if I'm angry, you have to be angry too. Right? Israel had already lived by God's commands. We need to live by what God asks us to do. Where we get in trouble is when we listen to circumstances rather than to the Lord. Verse 20, And I said to you, You have come to the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God has given us. That's the second time the title of the Lord our God. There's ten times in this text God is referred to as the Lord our God or Lord our God, Father, I, I take it that Moses wants us to see that what must motivate us is who God is. God's person, God's purposes, God's promises. In the midst of great trials and suffering, do you know those three? Do you know God's person, God's purposes, and God's promises? I mean, he says it ten times. I, I take it for effect. And the Lord is giving us this land, and he is Lord. See, verse 21, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and take possession as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Now, this is one of the implications. I'm just going to mention this one and move on. I, 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 I would tell you to wrestle with your own fears... The command not to fear here is not rooted in your comfort or convenience. It's not a suggestion. The command here not to fear is rooted in God's person, God's purposes, and God's promises. And when we fear, 
I take it as an offense against God because we are not seeing him in the circumstance. We, one of the phrases that we teach people is God has to be the biggest reality in the room. Not, not, not the person sinning against you. Not our suffering. Uh, you wrestle with 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. I, I would submit to you, and I'll hold this open-handed, that fear of punishment is the mother of all fears. So that means if I have a fear of heights, I think I have to ask a question before I deal with my heights. And that is, how am I doing with the Lord? How am I doing with the Lord? You are commanded, Moses commands the people, do not fear, be dismayed. The average Israelite is five foot three, and we're going to read here in a moment that there are Anakim in the land. We're, gonna, we're not going to read it, but in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, you could read of Og. Uh, he had a 14 and a half, or 13 and a half foot long bed made of iron. He was a Rephaim, uh, related to the Anakim, and somehow related to the Nephilim. Uh, right? we, we could get lost in all this. Goliath is one of these. After they were pushed out of Hebron, they went to the coast and settled there. And Goliath is an ancestor of the Anakim. If we're going to do well when we're facing giants, we're going to have to see God as the biggest reality in the room. Do not fear or be dismayed. In this book, there are 14 different words used for fear. 14. And again, he's talking to people that are going to go into combat, hand-to-hand combat, with a sword that's 12 inches or a spear, and it is going to be really terrifying. Maybe the two most terrifying events of my life were, one, jumping out of airplanes. So uh, we typically like the land all the airplanes were in, uh, that was a terrifying moment. And then one moment in Saudi Arabia where we thought Scud missiles were coming in at us and we were trying to remember how to put on all that chemical gear that we never thought we'd have to wear. Do not fear or be dismayed. 17 commands against being afraid to people about to enter into hand-to-hand combat. Verse 22 Then all of you came near me and said, let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities into which we shall come. Now, listen, there's one difficult, well, there's one really difficult exegetical issue and that's right here in verse 22. In Deuteronomy 1, 22, this request to spy out the land comes from the people and I take it out of fear and disobedience and number. 13 verses 1 and 2 it's said to come from the Lord and in Numbers 13 verse 17 it's said to come from Moses so I I, I wrote down one sentence and I'm going to keep moving I think this is the way I would reconcile all of those witnesses like 1 Samuel 8 the people in rebellion clamored for a king God sends Samuel to appoint for them a king and Samuel appoints the king I take it here, the people are afraid and don't want to obey God. And this is where we're going to get to the meat of why I love this text. Of of how sin leads us to rebellion and disobedience. They, 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 They don't want to obey God. They come up with a better plan than God. They come up with partial obedience. So they present to Moses this plan. I take it then Moses tells them to do it. 
and I take it God sanctions all of it. That's how I would harmonize all the text because the Lord has an ordained purpose in all of this. Beloved, what should have happened in verse 22 is then all of you packed up your belongings and we started marching north. That's what should have happened. Partial obedience is disobedience. And I take it in verse 23, Moses, like the rest of us, has an ample dose of fear of man and he gives in to all the people pressing into him. Again, narratives, put yourself in the story. What will come out of your soul if the entire nation presses in on you for a different plan than God's plan? A plan that may result in less loss of life, a plan that seems less problematic. I think, I think every person I've ever counseled, myself included, struggles with the fear of man. One book, how about one book? When People Are Big and God Is Small. All my daughters have read that book. Well, last one. We got one more to come. Esteban, one more. Megan, one more. One more. We'll see if they end up here. How could they not? Uh, when people are big and God is small. All of you wrestle with the fear of man. Every counselor, I tell them the greatest need for character is to fear God more than they fear the person they're trying to help. And their greatest competencies learn to ask anticipatory questions. Moses, I take it, gives in the fear of men. I take it. He's judged for it. We'll see that in chapter 1, verse 37. And he's judged for it again in chapter 3. But Moses says, the things seem good to me. And I took 12 men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol. That means cluster. They've got a big giant cluster. They put it between two, two poles. So uh, Numbers tells us. And spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, it's a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Well, two of the spies said that. The other ten gave a frightening report. And here we are. Here's the main point where I want to be able to camp a little bit, 26 through 33. Yet you would not go up but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And where I think this text is really helpful is to see how Israel justifies their disobedience. Because th this text is not merely about people that lived thousands of years ago. This text is still about God and our heart. We, we, we still do the same that they did. Look at the first thing they do. Verse 27, and you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the land of the Amorites to destroy us. See, this is, I think it's the second implication, and I think this is the most important one. What your sin wants for you is autonomy from God. Your sin wants self-rule, independent rule. I'll decide what tree I eat from, thank you very much. Your sin wants to be free from anything owing obedience or allegiance or honor to God. And so the way it justifies it, it number one, it disparages God. Right? Evolution is a disparagement of God. We make God little so we don't have to obey him. We make him not good so we don't have to obey him. And the second thing that we do is that we make ourselves a permanent victim. And that is the entire industry of psychology exists to make people permanent victims. We, we read verse 27 and we say, I would never say that. But how many of our kids have said that to us? Mom, you hate me. You never let me. I never get to. You always let the other one. We, 
We always say to God, why did you? How did you give me this spouse? Why did you give me this life? How, what? We, we do this in other words. We do this with more subtle words, but we're still bringing a complaint against God to justify our rebellion. They think the reason they don't do verse 26 is because they think God is not good, verse 27. God forbid. Verse 28, they continue disparaging God. Where are we going up? What they're asking for here is exact steps. Lord, I'll obey and I'll only obey if you tell me exactly where to put my feet, right? right? Surely none of our children have done this where you've asked them to maybe clean the kitchen and then you go out and you come back and they haven't cleaned the kitchen and they say, well, I didn't know exactly what you wanted me to do, right? So, so when we don't want to obey, we need exacting specifications. We, we, we want it all to be in our favor. And then here comes the second one. Disparage God or make ourselves a permanent victim. Our brothers have made our hearts melt. Now, beloved, that's not possible. You cannot make me do anything. Satan cannot make me do anything. My biochemistry cannot make me do anything. No, nobody and nothing can make me sin except for my own desires. Nobody can make my heart melt. But we... Right, so, so, right, so from now on, you can never say, you make me mad. The, the best we can say to each other is, baby, your sin squeezed out of me my sin, right? But, but then we've lost all the fun because in fighting, we just admitted we're a, we're admitted we're a sinner. Nobody makes your heart melt. The, all suffering does is put a hundred foot pounds of pressure on your soul and it squeezes out of your soul what's ever in your soul. That these brothers that gave a bad report were the occasion of their disobedience, not the cause of their disobedience. But we do this all the time to justify our own rebellion. No more the traffic makes me angry. No more saying I'm frustrated, because that, that's another excuse. Say I'm angry. And if you find yourself saying of yourself 10 times a day, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, then you might come to the end of the night and say, good Lord, I'm an angry man. I might need a redeemer. Our brothers have made our hearts melt, so we're innocent, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven, right? And notice that, notice that they have to exaggerate. In order to justify their rebellion, they have to exaggerate the enemy. What? God doesn't play poker. But I'm going to make an analogy. God doesn't play poker. We, we, we have, we're playing poker with God and we have five cards in our hands. And they're two suited. One suit is, God, I can disparage God. He's not good, he's not great, and he's not wise. Those are my three cards suited. The other suit is I'm a victim, so I'm absolved of responsibility, I'm afforded rights, and we push in our five cards. You don't know my husband. Counselor, you don't know my wife. You don't know my professor. You don't know my parents. You don't know my circumstances. If you just knew my circumstances, if you just knew the Anakim, if you just knew the cities fortified up to heaven, you wouldn't tell me I have to obey God. You'd give me a, a pass. We, we, we push in our five cards. We disparage God. Suit one, suit two, I'm a permanent victim. God is not good, not great, not wise. I, I'm absolved of responsibility. I'm afforded rights. And God pushes back in his five cards. He doesn't play poker. 
And his five cards just say C-R-O-S-S. -S. And he wins the hand. There is no suffering that trumps the lordship of Christ. None. There is no trauma. None. No trauma where the Lord is. Read Revelation. A counseling book. God says to his people. Jesus says to his people whom he died for. Uh, to Smyrna. One of the two churches of the seven doing well. He gives them two commands in chapter 2 verse 10. Uh, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And the second command is be faithful unto death. And he doesn't blush, and he's not embarrassed. He tells people, his people, that they need to be faithful to him unto death. There is no trauma that trumps the lordship of Christ. None. He can ask of you anything he wants. He's king, and he's your savior. But when we don't want to obey, we have to exaggerate our circumstance and we have seen, the end of verse 28, the sons of the Anakim there. Again, whether Goliath is six foot three or nine foot nine, depending upon how you do the math, the average Israelite, five foot three, he was a giant to them. The Anakim were tall. You know, it's fascinating. In Deuteronomy 9, God, well, <laughs> turn with me there. Uh, turn with me, Deuteronomy. I just want you to see real quickly how, what, what God's response to this, right? God doesn't play poker. But I'll show you God's exact words of what he says to Israel. Chapter 9, verse 1, right? Here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today. Right? This is 40 years later when they're on the eastern shore of Jordan going in westward to go into dispossessed nations greater and mightier than you. Cities great and fortified up to heaven. A people great and tall. The sons of the Anakim. God is using their words. He, he is allowing their words whom you know of and whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? And then he raises them with himself. Verse 3. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them. And he, there's a third uh, a pronoun there in the Hebrew. Smarter people than me had to tell me that, right? But there's a third he. He goes over before you. He will destroy them. He will subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. God says, okay, I grant you Anakim. I raise you me. We're going to have to preach this truth to ourselves when we're practicing to jump out of an airplane. Because once you go out the door, it's too late to learn how to count. Beloved, God is the biggest reality in the room. What are the Anakim? What were... One of my favorite texts is 2 Corinthians 1, right? 8 and 9. Paul said we received the sentence of death, right? That near physical death experience. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Well, what is death to God? Nothing. Nothing. What are Anakim to God? They're like grasshoppers, Isaiah 40 says, of all the kings and princes of Babylon. Before they go into captivity, God reminds them, grasshoppers, all of them. We're going to have to fight for our own soul to not see the Anakim. We're going to have to fight to see the Lord. Verse 29, then I said to you, here come some more of those 17 commands. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. I think that would get, right? My favorite narrative of all narratives is Mark 4, 35 through 41, 
to try to teach biblical counseling. And that, that's the narrative of, this, of the storm in the Sea of Galilee. After Jesus calms the storm, he says to his disciples, why are you afraid? Now, the word there is not the normal word for fear. It's the word translated in Revelation 21.8 for cowardice. Who says the people are almost drowned to death? Why are you cowardly? The ESV has, why are you so afraid in verse 40? And then he says, and, 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 and why do you still have no faith? I think verse 40 of Mark 4 would get Jesus kicked out of every counseling ministry in America, my church and yours included. I think we have two options. Either fear is the deadliest thing to your soul or drowning is the deadliest thing to your soul. Apparently our Lord thinks fear, unbelief, if it's rooted in unbelief, one ounce of unbelief is infinitely worse than all the suffering combined. Do not be in dread or afraid of them. Now, look at, look at how Moses, right? So, so again, uh, we have to have eyes on the Lord. I, normally, when, when, when we ask people, when we have them read Mark 4, we ask them, what comes out of your soul in the storm? And typically what comes out of people's soul is a doubt of God's goodness, doubt of God's greatness, or a doubt of God's wisdom. And I, I get it, God's wisdom is probably rightly uh, assumed under God's greatness if we're doing attributes. But I like those three because it, it, is God... Uh, does God, is God good? Does he know what's good? For, uh, does he want what's good for me? Is he wise? Does he know what's good for me? And is he great? Can he bring to pass what's good for me? Well, Moses answers with, with eyes on the Lord. Eyes, three truths about God. Verse 30, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you. He's great, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He's good, verse 31. And in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Skip verse 32. Verse 33, who went before you in the way to seek you out a place to pitch your tents and fire by night and in the cloud by day to show you by what way you should go. See, the, 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 the command in verse 29 is grounded in the person of God. Verse 30, 31, and 33, he's great and he's good and he's wise and he's led you all this way. He's never led you astray. None of his commands are ever bad for you. Despite all the protestations to the contrary, the reason they don't obey God is verse 32. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. Now let me just give you one of the implications in here that we see often. People will often use the phrase, I have head knowledge, I just don't have heart knowledge. I have head knowledge, I just don't have heart knowledge. If you use that phrase, I don't, know, I don't know why you use that phrase, but everybody that I counsel that uses that phrase, use that phrase as an excuse. I, just, I, just, I can't obey until my heart gets into it. But, 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 but saving faith has always been thought of as three aspects, right? I think we printed them for you. Noticia, knowledge, uh, census, conviction, and fiducia, commitment. And if I don't have all three, I've not actually obeyed. But Paul, Paul wanted to bring about the obedience of faith. Romans 1.5, Romans 16.26. He wanted to bring about the obedience of faith. The Bible never separates the head and the heart. The problem is I don't believe. What would that do for my soul if I trained my soul to say the reason I did not obey here is because I didn't believe God. The reason I didn't obey here, the reason I fought to win the reason why I use sinful words to win, 
The reason why I did that is because I don't believe God right here. Then that person, right, has to go home every night and say, Lord, I say I'm a believer, but I got a whole lot of unbelief in my soul. Right? There's another one of the implications, right? The reason why people don't grow and change is we're applying Bible verses to a non-existent version of ourselves. We're applying Bible verses to a person who doesn't exist. We're applying Bible verses to the 72 and sunny version of ourselves. The Captain America version of ourselves. Our Captain Marvel version of yourself, right? For men or women, there's only, there's only one of those two, right? Right? Uh, Captain America has got a shield and all the verses that come at Captain Marvel, he just bounces. I don't need those. I'm fine. But, but I'm not who I am at 72 and sunny. I am who I am when the, I get cut off in traffic and I get sinned against. That's who I am. That's who I am. I'm I'm this person. I don't believe. Now, when when God sends suffering as his reconnaissance team to to seek out my soul and reveal unbelief, then then I no longer can deflect Bible verses. Now now I'm I'm a believing unbeliever in need of redemption. I, I need a savior. You're not my problem. No matter what you're doing to me, what's my problem is what's coming out of me. I have unbelief. I need a savior, not a therapist. Now, the terrifying result of unbelief, right, right? So, I, I, more book recommendations. Read all the dead people, right? C.S. Lewis said, uh, for every, what, three or four alive, get to read a couple dead people. And then we like to say the better the better, especially if they have bad haircuts. Start with Thomas Watson, and then just and then just read all the Thomases, right? Right. Start with Watson; he's probably the easiest. And then start reading the rest of the Puritans. The Puritans would say there is more evil, more evil, more evil in a drop of sin than a sea of affliction. There is more evil in the least sin than the greatest punishment, even hell itself. There's more evil in any sin than suffering because sin is the cause of all suffering. Hebrews 3 tells us, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Unbelief is our greatest enemy. One ounce of unbelief, one ounce of unbelief is an infinite offense against God. The Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden into being near Hebron, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me, the Lord Moses was angry on your account. Again, I think Moses is blaming the people for his own uh, fear of man. And said, you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, right? Here's another, right? This is in the Numbers text earlier, but here it's left to here. But here's another excuse for disobedience. Parents, be careful trying to protect your kids from all things. Put suntan lotion on them. Help them not get burned. 
Point them to their Savior. Point them to their need of redeeming grace. I, I think this is an excuse. They're standing behind their kids. It's another reason for their disobedience. Piety. Right? How, how will you know if this is, not a, if this is a legitimate reason or not, right? right? How will you know if this, because this sounds really pious. We, we don't want our kids to be, we don't want our kids to be harmed. I don't want my kids to be harmed either. How, how will we know if this is, if this is false piety? I think you'll know, right, if you'll sin to get it or sin when denied it. I think you'll know if how you respond when questioned, right? Somebody once said that your humility is, is best seen in how you respond to a critique. How will we know? You're going to have to ask your soul questions, right? That this could be exactly right, right? There, there, there are times when we must, right? Yes, and there are times when we're sinning and hiding. We, we're going to have to ask a lot of questions of our soul. What am I wanting? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, we'll let that just lie for today. That's a, probably a whole nother uh, endeavor. They shall go in there and to them I will give it and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea and then that's where then they just go in circles for 38 years before that generation dies and then they head east and then northward and then end up crossing Jordan River. Verse 41 looks like repentance. Right? Uh, read the book of Job, right? In your time. Take the time to read the book of Job. Job was a great man, a godly man at 72 and sunny and 52 and cloudy and 32 and sleeting and minus 32 and a blizzard and then at minus 200 and a tsunami in his soul, eventually unbelief came out of his soul. You know, God, come to think of it, I haven't done anything to deserve this. You owe me an explanation for my suffering. And then in Job chapter 40, God says, you dress like a man and I will question you. And then God undresses him for two chapters. And in chapter, uh, sorry, that was chapter 38 and chapter 40, we would have counted Job's words right there as repentance. All of us would have. God was not done. Two more chapters. And then in chapter 42, Job repents. Here, I take it this is worldly grief and not godly grief. The difference between worldly grief and godly grief in 2 Corinthians 7.10 is the difference between life and death. And just while I'm at it, I say it one more time, the only thing psychology can give you is worldly grief. Death. That's it. Death. They cannot bring God into the room. They cannot bring God in the room as the one offended. They cannot bring God in. They cannot see correctly. Their observations are truncated. Their interpretations are, 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 are wholly wrong. And their applications or interventions are wrong. The world cannot help you. Freud cannot help you. If your problem is in your soul, there is only one Savior. And he's a perfect Savior for all problems in your soul. This looks like repentance. And I think it's feigned F-E-I-G-N, repentance. And I'll hopefully show you why. Then you answered me. We have sinned against the Lord. They even say the word sinned. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. There's the third reference to command. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war. And see, here comes evidence of that it's a worldly uh, grief. Thought it easy to go up into the hill country. Right? 
I think that they see the punishment, they see God's anger, and now they want to obey. But it's never been easy. It'll never be, they're never sufficient. Oh, the greatest enemy of our souls is not suffering, it's self-sufficiency. If it's easy, then they'll rely on themselves. And if it's too hard, they rely on themselves and disobey. But either way, they're relying on themselves. They thought it easy to go up into the hill country. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up or fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated by your enemies. So verse 43 said, should have read, so I spoke to you and you obeyed and did not go up. You would not listen, and you rebelled again against the command. There's the fourth reference, the command of the Lord. And presumptuously, another evidence that this is worldly grief rather than godly grief, it went up into the hill country. Then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. Here's the most terrifying verse of the whole encounter, verse 45. And you returned and wept before the Lord. Worldly grief sheds tears. Worldly grief just doesn't have God as the object of the one who's offended. You wept before the Lord, but the Lord did not listen to your voice or give ear to you. God will not be mocked. God must be sought as redeemer if the problems, right, if, if somewhere on your page, if you wanted to draw a heart, like a heart, right, and you could put one giant X in the middle of the heart, and then on the outside of the heart, you could put a bunch of different things, a bunch of different dots. If the problems outside my soul, outside my, my heart, my mind, my soul, my spirit, if it's outside my soul, then, then, then the, re- the solution will be relief and God will be my therapist. If the solution is inside my soul, If it's inside my soul, then the only goal is redemption and God will have to be my Savior. Almost everybody that comes to our ministry for counseling, myself included, right? If I would come to my ministry for counseling, what we want is we want relief. We don't want redemption. We want God to calm the storm We don't want God to change our heart. If all we want is therapeutic relief, we're in danger of having the Lord not listen or give voice or give ear to your voice. Sometimes the Lord will give us relief. Praise God if he do, but I must have redemption. And so they remained at Kadesh Many days, 38 years and some change, the days that you remain there. Beloved, when suffering comes to your soul, have you prepared it to see God as the biggest reality in the room? When suffering comes to your soul and the commands are difficult, one of the Pray for pastors. One of the most difficult things in pastoral ministry is the truth that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that he lists for non-believers, but I think it applies to believers who are caught in their sin, is this, that the pastor pours out the word of God to your soul and people reject it. 
One of the most heartbreaking moments for me in ministry is when one family doesn't like another family and instead of doing what the Bible commands them to do, to love them, they leave. And then when the pastors meet with them and press them, but, but, but you have to love. You, 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 can't, just, you can't just leave. You, you have to do what the Bible says. You have, to, you have to pray. You have to humble yourself. You have to meet with them. Then that family, to get out of loving the difficult family, tells the pastors they're oppressing them. And so it goes. That's the one. Be careful. There's coming in the biblical counseling, trauma-informed counseling, and it makes people victims still. Do, 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 do I see my greatest good is to please God even if Anakim are before me? Do I see him? Do I see him as my redeemer? When I sing to him, do I sing, sing to him as redeemer? I pray that in the moment of testing, all of our souls would first respond with big, giant thoughts of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is not stale and distant and cold, but it's alive and active. Thank you that this text is not merely about others, but it's about me. I see this in my own soul. I see this in my soul. There are times in my own life that the, the only reason why I do what I think has to be done is because I have a title and not because it's right. And what a terrible example. Lord, help me see that what's the best for me and for others is your commands is to follow you. Please do that at BBC. Thank you. Thank you for a sister church that, that cherishes your word. Give us. What, 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 what was Augustine's prayer? Lord, command us what thou wilt, and then grant what thou commandest. Or modern day, Lord, accomplish in me what you require of me. Lord, we have to have faith. We have to have faith. Please, spirit, condescend. Grant us faith. Cause Christ to ascend in our soul. Cause us to see him as the anchor in our soul. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.